0: text we're going to be looking at this morning is a great story. So if you want to go ahead and find your way to the end of chapter 4, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to start today. But before we get there, I just want to tell a brief story. Um, One of the highlights of this past year in our family was that my daughter, Chloe, turned 16, 16 years old, sweet 16, all right? And that was awesome. We celebrate birthdays kind of big in our house. We had cake, we had balloons, and we also did something really special for her. We bought a car for Chloe, uh, and it just so happened to be the car she had been dreaming about since she was a little girl. It was a VW Bug convertible, okay? So uh, my wife and I had been looking for a while. We saw one on Craigslist. It had the right number of miles or it was the right price, and so we bought it. And it was awesome. And Chloe was thrilled. Okay, so you yeah, know some cars make a statement. They just kind of like announce something, an F-150 with big old tires, it makes a statement, I'm tough, right? Uh, a red sports car that's sleek and shiny, it's got really nice wheels. It makes a statement, I'm fast. You know what statement a VW Bug convertible makes? You know, it's, it's cute, right? It announces to the world, I am cute, and it is. It's rounded, it's small, it even came with a flower, a flower on the dashboard of the car, okay? So this car is cute, and that's perfect for when a cute girl like Chloe is driving it. It's not so perfect when a dude like me is driving it, okay? Okay? <laughs> So we get this car, it's new to us. I don't know when the last time they had the oil change. So I'm trying to be a good dad, and I'm going to take the car to get the oil change. And so I'm driving to the oil change place, and the whole time there I'm feeling so awkward and so insecure. I mean, no offense if you have a VW Bug convertible, but it's got a flower on the dashboard, okay? I mean, uh, you know, so... Here I am driving the car. I go to the oil change place, get that done. I'm driving back here to the church, uh, back to my office, and I'm coming down Grand Parkway, about to exit onto Sinker Ranch Boulevard. And there's this long section there where people can merge onto Grand Parkway. And there's a little section where you can actually ease over and get off of Grand Parkway, right? Y'all been there? You know what I'm talking about? So I'm on Grand Parkway. I'm in the bug, feeling insecure, I've got my blinker on, I'm about to ease over, and right when it's time for me to start doing that, this dude behind me in a big Chevy Tahoe just, you know, kind of zips over and speeds up and blocks me, okay? And so right then, in that moment, that, that split-second moment without thinking, I looked over at this dude driving the Tahoe who was by now was looking at me, and I did this, I went... And right when I did that, I just started laughing. Oh, my gosh. I am an idiot. I had to pull over. I was laughing so hard. I was crying. This is ridiculous. Here I am trying to be all tough and tell this guy in this Tahoe, he's such a bad driver, and I'm driving a car with a flower on the dashboard. That's ridiculous. My behavior did not match the car at all. Why do I tell you that story? It's not because I think I'm, you know, just a, I'm an a idiot all the time. But that, that was, you know, i tell you that story to make this point. We're here to talk about Jesus and what it means to follow him. This text we're going to look at this morning zeroes in on two important facets of that relationship. If you're a follower of Jesus by grace, you are related, you are you're connected to the one man who is the most loving and the most generous person who has ever lived. Jesus Christ loves sinners like you and me. And he was generous to give the most precious thing that is ever could be. He gave his own life so that you and I could be forgiven. And again, by grace, we're in relationship to him. And that leads me to a question. For you and me, do our lives, are they a good match for him? Especially when it comes to the love we show to others and the generosity with which we might behave to one another. Are we a good match with the way Jesus loved and was generous? Or like me and that VW Bug, is it just a complete mismatch? The stakes are high here, guys, because when your person is a good match, they say, you know what, I, I'm, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of loving others and being generous with my stuff. Then God is honored with that. Others are blessed, and the gospel is demonstrated. But for those of us sometimes who may say, gosh, I'm kind of struggling to love others. I'm struggling to be generous with my stuff. Well, opportunity is missed in that moment to honor the Lord, missed opportunity to bless others and missed opportunity to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. So we've been in this book, uh, the book of Acts, for a while now, and what we've been looking at is how the church, this early church there in Jerusalem, this brand new assembly of men and women who were gathering together to worship Jesus and to serve in his kingdom, we're seeing how this church began to grow and to expand, and it's been awesome. As that began to happen, there was something else that began to happen, and that's opposition. Satan hates God. He hates Jesus, and so it's no surprise that he hates the people who gather together to worship Jesus and to live their lives for him. And over the last few weeks, we've seen how Satan has begun to kind of ratchet up his opposition. A few weeks ago, right at the beginning of chapter 4, Mitch taught us how Satan began to kind of pressure and to attack the church from the outside. His hope was by having the leaders of this church, Peter and John and the other apostles, arrested and threatened that they would just shut up. But last week, Mitch showed us that that plan of Satan spectacularly failed, right? The, 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 these leaders, Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles, they pray to God for courage to speak even more boldly, even more loudly for Jesus. Well, this morning what we're going to see is that Satan tries another attack. He's not going to try to attack the church from the outside like he did last time. This time, his aim is to attack the church from the inside. And what we're going to see is that God is going to shut that down powerfully. He's going to shut it down powerfully. But along the way, there's the question that's raised about these followers of Jesus and about you and me. Are our lives, the way we live our lives, especially in relation to how we love one another and the generosity with which we treat each other, is that a good match with our claim to be a follower of Jesus? Are we reflecting our Savior or are we struggling in this area? This text is going to spotlight some stuff that we might need to pay attention to. So let's take a look. This text, it goes from chapter 4, verse 32, all the way to chapter 511. It's kind of a long section, but it's really pretty easy to break it down. This first section, the first couple of verses, 32 to 35, I labeled in my notes a dynamic display of Christian love and generosity. Okay, let's take a look. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them. And bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. I mean, we read that description of the, what was happening inside the walls of that early church, and we just say, wow, wow, what a beautiful picture. I mean, all of us would want to be part of that church, right? Right? I mean, what was happening here, people were loving one another and they were being generous with their stuff. Needs were being met. The Lord was being honored. It's a dynamic display of Christian love and generosity. Along the way, these believers, the way they were living, was that a good match with Jesus? Yeah, it was. Let's dig a little bit deeper and ask the question, how did this all come about? Where did this behavior come from? Did these... Men and women just wake up one day and decide they're going to be generous and start loving each other? Were they responding to some leadership initiative that Peter and the rest of the apostles had given to them? No, I don't think that's where it came from at all. I think that where this behavior, this love and generosity came from is something powerful. And it's right here in the text. It's right there in verse 32. In the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. These men and women believed. They believed in Jesus who loved them and who had given his life for them. And in that moment, they were changed. Believing in Jesus changes you, right? Right? It changes it, It, you know, rather than being alienated from God because of our sin, now we're restored to God because of his grace. Rather than having despair, now we have hope. Rather than being, you know, filled with doubt and and, and just all sorts of of hurtful feelings of of what's going to happen to me when I die, now we have the assurance of our salvation. Believing in Jesus changes you. A few of the areas that spotlighted here is that it changes people in the way they love one another and in the way they view their things, the things that they own, their stuff. I like the way John Piper describes what's happening here. John Piper says, because these people believed in Jesus, now they had hearts that were tightened in relationship to one another and loosened in relationship to their stuff. As a result of believing in Jesus, their hearts were tightened in relationship to one another and loosened in relationship to their stuff. And you can see both of those right there in verse 32. Again, they believed in Jesus, and now they were of one heart and one soul. Their hearts were tightened in relation to one another. And not only that, but not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Their hearts were were loosened in relationship to their stuff. The relationship that they had with Jesus changed the relationship they had with one another and the relationship they had with their stuff. And the result is a dynamic display of Christian love and Christian generosity. Check out verse 36 and 37. I label this one great example. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In the weeks and months to come, as we journey through uh, this book of Acts, we're going to see a lot more of Barnabas. Barnabas was a pioneer taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Later, we're going to see Barnabas partner up with Paul on his missionary journeys. Along the way, Barnabas shows courage, faith, and enough love to earn the nickname Son of Encouragement. That's a pretty awesome nickname. all right. Barnabas is one of those guys, it's impossible not to like this guy. We see here how his ministry began. His true faith in Jesus created a bond of love for others. It loosened his love for his stuff. And as a result, God was honored, people were blessed, and the gospel was demonstrated by the actions that he he took. But as chapter 4 turns over into chapter 5, there's a section here, verse 1 to 11, and in my notes I labeled it, on the other hand, it's the sad story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira stand in sharp contrast to Barnabas. Barnabas was truly changed by the gospel. And while Ananias and Sapphira might look like it, they may have the outward appearance of being changed by the gospel. By the way they lived their lives, they demonstrate that they were not changed at all. It's really interesting. Ananias' name It means God is gracious. Sapphira's name means beautiful. It's a great name. The way they lived their lives demonstrated no grace. And instead of something beautiful, something ugly was shown. Let's see what happens. In verse 1, it says, A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So far, so good, right? I mean, by all appearances, uh, Ananias and Sapphira did the very same thing that Barnabas did. They both owned a little real estate and sold it. They both brought the money that they received from the sale and gave it to the apostles. The difference was that Barnabas brought all of the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet whereas Ananias and Sapphira only brought a part of it. But here's the thing, that in and of itself wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong for Ananias and Sapphira to just give part of the money. As Peter says clearly in verse 4, the property belonged to them before and after the sale. They weren't obligated or under any sort of mandate or obligation to give all of that money. The apostles, But the problem was this, Ananias and Sapphira gave that money to the apostles in such a way as it made it look like they were giving all of it, when in reality, they were only giving part of it. Uh, it's really interesting, the word that Luke uses here in this text for that, that phrase, keep back, where it says that Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the price for themselves, That was a word that was used back then for something associated with financial fraud. It's a lie. Financial fraud, by definition, is an act of deception involving money for the purpose of personal gain. That's exactly what happened there with Ananias and Sapphira when they gave part of that money to the apostles. But I want you to see what happens. The Holy Spirit gives peter discernment into what was really going on and he confronts him and and you know what guys this is a good reminder to us this is a sobering reminder to us that we might think we can concoct some kind of scheme or plan that nobody else is going to know about but the things that are done in the dark will be revealed in the light nothing is hidden from god yikes Let's see what happens. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter doesn't beat around the bush. He's not hemming and hawing and kind of, you know, working up to the moment. He goes right at it, and he confronts Ananias. And in doing so, Peter actually unmasks the true agent behind this whole scheme, and that's Satan. Satan's goal is to do everything he can to disrupt and to destroy the work of God in people's lives and in the church and in this world. Among the many weapons that he uses to do that, the ammo that he loves to use the most is a lie. In the Bible, Satan is called the father of lies. He lies all the time. And when, as, as Peter says, Satan filled Ananias' heart to do these things and to lie to the Holy Spirit, what did Satan fill his heart with? I think he filled his heart with lies. That's keeping with the character of Satan. I think we can take a, a closer look at what Ananias and Sapphira did, and we can get a pretty good idea of the identity of these lies that Satan used. But along the way, something interesting is going to happen. Because for you and me, This story of Ananias and Sapphira is much more than just an interesting story that happened a long time ago. What this story is going to reveal is that you and I face some of these same attacks and assaults from Satan on almost a daily basis. And and what we're going to discover is that this text is going to identify and put the spotlight on some choices that you and I must make regularly, if we are to live lives that are a good match with Jesus? Let's take a look. I think first, uh, the, the actions of Ananias and Sapphira showed that they were rejecting the reality of God's goodness and willingness to care for his children. Their actions, what they did, demonstrated that they were rejecting God's willingness and ability to care for his children. God knows where his children are, right? He knows what we're facing. He knows what we're needing. He has the ability and the desire to help us have what we need and to take care of our needs. Uh, That's just truth from God's word. But when you take a look at Ananias and Sapphira, in this little scheme, they were not willing to entrust entrust themselves to God. They weren't willing to say, God, you've promised to take care of us, and so we're going to trust you. Instead, they schemed to manipulate things so they could take care of themselves. And this is a classic lie from Satan, a classic. He used it all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when he's whispering into Eve's ear, you know what? God's holding out on you. You really can't trust him. He used this lie again with Jesus when Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism. Jesus, man, you've been 40 days without food. Why don't you end this hunger and turn some of these stones into bread? Satan's lie about, about trying, to, uh, he's trying to play up our fear that we're not going to have enough. And when he plays up our fear, he's seeking to break down our trust in the Lord. And when he's got us there with our fear raised up, and our trust in the Lord broken down, bam, he's got us. Next, I think not only were Ananias and Sapphira rejecting God's goodness and willingness to care for them, but they were also rejecting the value of having God's approval. They were rejecting the value of having God's approval, and instead they were preferring to have the attention and the approval of other men. They wanted the credit. They wanted the attention that would come from making such a sacrificial gift. Only they weren't willing to actually make the sacrificial gift. Maybe they saw Barnabas, and they saw Barnabas make this gift, and, and people were like, wow, Barnabas, that was awesome. Thank you so much. And they wanted some of that attention for themselves. But they weren't willing to do the right things. And and and, and instead, they were motivated to pursue this approval of men. And can I just speak for those of us in the room who have some tendency as a people pleaser? Having the attention and the approval of others is something that we must pay very close attention to. Don't worry about raising your hand, but how many of us have been tempted to stretch the truth make ourselves look a little bit better than we actually are in order to receive the attention or the approval of others. That's happened to me like a million times this last week. And I think that's exactly what's going on here with Ananias and Sapphira. Again, they wanted the other people to see them as as worthy, as as godly, as as competent, as, as loving, as generous. Above all, none of us want to feel the sting of rejection, and so we can all very easily fall into this trap and give in to this temptation of making ourselves look a whole lot better than we actually are so that other people will say, man, wow, that dude is awesome. And okay, this thing got really convicting, so let's just move on. <laughs> wow. Just by looking at Ananias and Sapphira and their little scheme here, it looks... Like, there's one more lie Satan delivered up to them, and this was a big one. Not only did, did Satan lie to them about the reality of God's goodness and his willingness to care for his children, not only did, did Satan lie to them about the value of having God's approval over the approval of men, but Satan also lied to them about the priority of obedience. He lied to them about the priority of obedience. Uh, with Satan, with well, sorry, with Ananias and fire we don't know what was going on with them as they were contemplating this little scheme. Maybe they were back home when they were kind of putting this whole thing together, and maybe they knew it was wrong. Maybe they knew it was wrong to kind of lay up, lay this whole thing out there, but but keep back some for themselves. Maybe they knew that was wrong. They wrestle with it, but then they did it anyway. But then maybe they they knew it was wrong, and they just did it. They didn't even wrestle with it. We don't really know, but. What we do know is this, that Satan, the father of lies, he is a master at leading us to rationalize away the true nature of what we are doing when we disobey. Tell me if you've ever had thoughts like these run through your mind. It's okay. Nobody else is going to get hurt. Everybody else is doing it and you've worked so hard, and you've done so well, you you deserve this. Maybe he saved the granddaddy of them all, because this is the biggest one of all. You know what? Yeah, sure, it's wrong, but after you do it, you can go ask God for forgiveness, and he'll forgive you anyway. Satan is a master at lying to us, leading us to rationalize away the priority of our obedience. And he... Uh, He did that with Ananias and Sapphira. He threatens to do that to you and me every day, minimizing the holiness of God, minimizing the importance and priority of our obedience to him. And again, Satan loves to do this. He loves to say that God's holiness is not that big of a deal and that our obedience is not that big of a deal. But guess what? It is. It's a huge deal. And that's demonstrated in a, in a powerful way in what happens next in our text here. In verse 5, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came over all who heard of it. I bet that happened. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. God's holiness and the priority of obedience among his people Is a big deal. And here at the beginning, the beginning days of the life of the church, God demonstrates powerfully that His holiness is supreme and that His people who will be called by His name must pursue holiness as He is holy. This is a beginning point in salvation history when the the beliefs and the behaviors of those men and women who gather together to be part of the church are being defined. And God, at this beginning moment, says powerfully, I am holy. And guys, you need to pursue holiness as well. This is just like what happened at the beginning days, back in the Old Testament, when God gave his people the law and the instructions of how to worship him in the tabernacle. There were a couple of guys, Nadab and Abihu, that were kind of messing around, not really taking God's holiness seriously. Bam, God struck them dead and said, no, guys, this is serious. It happened again when the nation of Israel defeated Jericho. Remember what happened? At that beginning point, that beginning steps into the promised land, they were to defeat Jericho and take nothing from the city, devoted all to the destruction. Some dude named Achan thought, you know what, I can get a little extra for me. He put a little side, buried it in his tent great judgment came upon Israel, and bam, Achan is struck down. God's holiness is a big deal. God makes that point powerfully, and and he's going to reaffirm it. And what happens next? In verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. That makes me chuckle for whatever reason. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, again, we have this phrase, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Again, God is holy. And sin among his people is is not something that he's going to tolerate. It's under his righteous judgment. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, You and I should read this text and be profoundly stunned at the intensity of God's holiness. At the same time, we should be profoundly thankful for Jesus, for the fact that his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection paid for our sin, it covered it. Because were it not for Jesus, guess what? You and I would be just like Ananias And Sapphira. Thank you, Jesus. So, what's our takeaway here? What's the lesson that we're supposed to learn? Some of us may come away thinking, oh man, I I need to, uh, I need to, you know, I need to take care of getting rid of some of my stuff and giving the money to the church. And believe me, giving money to the church is great. We're so thankful, and you guys are so generous. But I really think this morning that God is interested in something, something deeper something in here, something inside our hearts. And I think he's interested in us not just hearing, listening to an interesting story and perhaps walking away unchanged, but I think God is interested in you and I examining our lives to ensure that especially when it comes to how we love one another and the generosity that we show to others in responding to their needs, God's interested in us examining whether or not we match up well with Jesus. You know, that's more than just a yes or no question, right? It's not like, yes, I'm a good match, or no, I'm not a good match. There's a range, right? There's some people who say, you know what, I think I'm doing pretty well. Other people who say, you know what, man, I'm struggling. I'm being selfish lately. And there's a whole range in between. I think what God may have for us this morning is to read this text, examine our lives, find out where we are on that spectrum, and perhaps take a few steps further toward living a life that's a great match with our Savior Jesus. And to that end, with this text in mind, can I just ask a few questions? Are there specific elements in your life and mine that reflect trust in God's willingness and ability to care for you? Could we look at how you spend your time or how we spend our money or perhaps some, some plans or decisions that we have made? And, and does that give evidence that we actually are trusting God to care for us? Or does it demonstrate, you know what, i got to kind of take care of me. Where are you on that? Here's another question. Does your life and mine, is there a demonstration that we value God's approval more than the approval of other people? Can you and I point to some specific instances where we have faced down that temptation to stretch the truth and make ourselves look better than we are? And we said, you know what, no. This is who I am, and I'm not going to lie about it. This is who I am. Or can you point and say, you know what, man, I failed that test. That's an area that I need to to develop in. One last question. To what extent does your life and mine reflect obedience to God and to his word? None of us are going to be perfect at this. But can you look at your life? Can you... Maybe you think back over the last week, and can you see, is there a track record of saying no to temptation, no to your flesh, and yes to God and to his way? Is that track record in place, and is there a way that you could perhaps take some steps to improve in that area? And you know, in our text this morning, Barnabas, remember I labeled him one great example? Barnabas was a great example of how to function in these areas of love and generosity. Barnabas was a guy just like us. He set a great example. But even Barnabas, as awesome as this guy was, you know, he's not the ultimate example. The ultimate example is Jesus, the Son of God. He, he took on flesh, and we follow him. That's our mission as a church to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. Again, Jesus entrusted himself fully to the Father. He didn't seek to care for himself. Instead, he said, no, God's going to take care of me. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Uh, Jesus uh, did not live his life to curry and to maintain the approval of men. It was the approval of his Father that he lived for. And Jesus obeyed his Father and everything that he was called to do, all the way to the cross. And you know, I've been realizing this more and more and more lately. It's not right for me or Mitch or preachers in general just to lay out a whole bunch of stuff that we are to do in order to live like Jesus and just lay it all out there and then say, okay, good luck, make it happen. See you next week. I don't think it's right to do that. Um, because here's the thing. On our own, we can't make it happen. It's not going to happen. Sure, there's effort that we've got to make and, and temptations that we must work to say no to. But, but what energizes all of this is the dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and in my life. My former pastor, Crawford Loritz would say it this way. The dynamic Christian life is always lived in the dependent position. He would say it a whole lot louder than that, but that's what he would say. The dynamic Christian life is always lived. A, a, a life that matches up well with Jesus, a dynamic Christian life, it's always lived in the dependent position. If I could quibble with him a little bit, I might say, it's always lived in the desperate position. Position because we are desperate for God's power to make that happen. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And boy, is that true. But the opposite is also true, right? With him, some pretty amazing things can happen. Do you know him? Do you know him? Remember how this text started out. The men and women of that early church believed, and as a result, they were changed. Have you believed in Jesus? If you have believed in Jesus, that's awesome. Let's live it out. Let's live it out in all the facets of life. And our text this morning gets zeroing in on those two. Are we loving one another well? Are we loving our stuff less? Let's live out our faith in Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you've not yet made that decision to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in him, may I just say to you that he loves you and he desires nothing more than to begin a work of transformation in your life. And that work can begin today. There's at least three things that will happen there's actually a whole lot more, but at least three will happen right away when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. He forgives you of your sin. That's awesome. He adopts you into his family, makes you his son or daughter through faith in Jesus. That's awesome. And then he begins his work with the power of the Holy Spirit to change you. That's awesome too. If you'd like to talk more about that, I would love to have that conversation with you. Redeemer Community Church, may we be a people, men and women, boys and girls, in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, that we demonstrate lives that match up well with our Savior Jesus. Because like me driving that VW Bug, when you're not a good match, it's ridiculous. But when you're a great match, With Jesus, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you for your great power, for your great love. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to be a savior through him You've made it possible for sinners like us to be forgiven and to live in relationship with you. You have given us grace, amazing grace. Lord, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live life that is a good match with Jesus? We want to honor you. We want to be a blessing to others. We want to demonstrate the truth of your love and and the power of the gospel. We want to demonstrate your ability to change lives. And together, we want to live for you and for your glory. So, Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, we say this a lot around here, but you are loved. And if there's any way that we as a church family, as church leaders, could share that love with you, we'd love to do that. Uh, Please come let us know how we could pray with you or encourage you or help you out in any way at all. All righty? Have a great afternoon. Enjoy the Super Bowl. We'll see you next Sunday. Louis Smith.